One who opens a school door closes a prison. Comes to us from Victor Hugo and Tom Bonet. Says, what is the difference between school and life? In school, you are taught a lesson and then given a test. In life, you are given a test that teaches you a lesson. Yeah, that's right. Today in the Disability Dojo, we are going to be talking about education. So get out your notebooks, your pens, your paper, and get ready. So on the Disability Dojo's we break this out into two different buckets of dojos. One bucket being we want to talk about issues that impact people with disabilities. Our first episode that regarded that was about health and disability. This would be the second. We're going to talk about disability and education. The other bucket of episodes are about being the best version of ourselves possible. We just wrapped a trilogy of asking self-reflective questions. So just a point of order as we get into this one that we do have two different types of versions of dojos that we get into. And this one is gonna be involving a topic that is really near and dear to my heart as a lifelong learner, as a, a student of education, as a teacher involved in education. It's a very important one education is needed. We hear that phrase a lot in many different contexts and regards that we just need to educate people, educate people, educate people, and it is very true. It is also true that education is needed, but not sufficient um, oftentimes in solving complex problems. I love a quote that uh, says that education is expensive, but consider the cost of ignorance. And that comes to us from Andy McClellan. When we talk about education and disability, there's a, there's a lot to get into. And of course, I always like to start with why. Well, why is education important? Well, when we look at the outcomes of education, when we look at primarily people think of, well, what kind of job are you going to get after you graduate high school? And that job then is tied into social economic status, which is tied into where we live, which is tied into what we can provide for our families, which is tied into then how they will go on and to live their lives. And so we build off of education and extrapolate it out to so many important life outcomes. And when we think about K through 12 education, that's a good significant part of our life that we spend in a school setting getting educated. And it is super impressionable into our lives. And of course, it goes beyond just developing our intellect, but also how we learn to socialize with one another. It happens in a school environment. And of course, I'm talking about the brick and mortar setting nowadays with uh, home-based education and virtual schools. There's a bit of that we're going to get into when we talk about the future of education. But certainly the traditional sense, it's so important and so impactful, not just again to the mind, but to the the social aspect and, and even the body. Nowadays, uh, with children and students who go to school K through 12, you know, nearly one third of their daily caloric intake happens there, many of which are receiving food from the schools. Uh, many of the schools are dictating how much physical activity they get. 
that's where my first involvement with education was, was I was a physical educator. And so I came from it believing that that is one of the most important aspects of getting educated was about physical health and how important that is. So when I do look at education, I, I do look at it as a social determinant of health. And again, going back to our issues episode with the dojo on health outcomes, our level of educational attainment predicts how long we will live our resiliency to chronic disease and quality of life. So I see education as being as much of a academic or even a professional outcome as I do as a health outcome. For me, uh, I regard health as one of the most important aspects of life. It, in fact, is, for me, fundamentally living, and uh, it is the L part of independent living. So, yes, very important. How does this all tie into people with disabilities? And you've heard on our long-form episodes how people with disabilities have lower graduation rates from high school than people without disabilities. And as many of you likely know, you know, educational attainment, getting a high school diploma is very important. People that do not graduate from high school versus people that do graduate from high school have all kinds of post-secondary outcomes that could be unfavorable, such as people who do not graduate from high school are more likely to be incarcerated, to have lower paying jobs, to be less likely to support a family and so on and so on. So getting a high school diploma is very important. People with disabilities are less likely to get high high school diplomas. This academic achievement gap has been closing in recent years, which is very encouraging. After high school, people with disabilities are less likely to go on to post-secondary education in four-year colleges specifically. And those that do go on to four-year colleges are still less likely to graduate compared to students without disabilities. People with disabilities after they graduate high school are less likely to be employed than students with disabilities who graduate high school. People with disabilities are also less likely to be getting into the trade schools and you know two-year degrees, AA degrees. And so people with disabilities, even if they are able to graduate high school, uh, their post-secondary outcomes aren't as favorable as their peers without disabilities. We can see how, at least according to the data, that it's very important for people with disabilities to ensure that they're you know, graduating from high school, but also setting themselves up if, if they want to be eligible to go to a four-year college, to a two-year AA, to a trade school, to, to go right into employment, that they're able to do this at, at least at the same levels at which people without disabilities are able to do this. And right now there's inequities and gaps in those areas. So uh, yeah, education, uh, at least when we look at the data, is super important. Certainly through you know, my experiences as a student with a disability, you know, one of the areas that is talked about a lot, especially when we do our peer supports and services here at the center, and, and I saw this as a teacher myself, that the stigma of disability and that surrounds disability is very prevalent. Like myself, I was very aware that I had a disability when I was in school and how it's very normal for teenagers, for students to be very self-conscious. And I was certainly self-conscious of it. I was encouraged to sit up to the, you know, the front of the class uh, so I could see the chalkboard. I recognized that when I was reading, I would have whatever I was reading very close to my face and it was very noticeable that I had a vision disability. During those years, I didn't want to stand out for that reason. And when people have physical disabilities and it's visible, uh, we just recently were going to air an episode where we're talking to a student with a disability and how conscious she is of it when, when it's very visible to others. 
So the stigma and stereotypes and not wanting to stand out during a time in one's development and growth where we're becoming more self-aware and self-conscious of ourselves, it can be a real challenge uh, being in school and having a disability, which then also ties into bullying is a real thing. And I got to tell you, I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many times I, people have come up to me and talked about their, their experiences while in school and very specific and detailed times of being bullied by other people for their differences and how that's really traumatized them well into young adult and even later in adult life. Those, those experiences that they had have been very traumatic. I, I remember, and I've had experience in teaching myself. I'm talking kindergarten through college. I've, I've taught at nearly every level. And uh, one of the experiences that I had early on in my teaching at a high school was seeing the impact of bullying on a, on a student who uh, I came across after school. You know, he's behind him, you know, the gym uh, and just punching a brick wall. Just out there by himself hitting a brick wall. To, I mean, his fists were bloody. And, you know, pulled him aside, got him cleaned up, saw this skull nurse and was just trying to connect to him with what is going on. And, you know, come to find out as he felt safe and disclosing, just talking about, you know, just hating himself and why. And why was he, you know, it was just the way that he was treated and picked on. No one wanted to be his friend. He looked different, acted different. You know, it was one of many times that, you know, just coming across this and just seeing the impact that social ostracization happens at this age. Again, the need to be accepted and the fear of being rejected is so real for us. This is a real issue when we talk about education, uh, people with disabilities. Yeah, there's the academic achievement gaps. When we talk about the social context in which education happens, it's very real and is, is important to talk about. You know, and I also think about veterans and education. So after World War II, uh, the GI Bill uh, was introduced. And after, I think it was in 2008, with our more modern conflicts and combat experiences abroad, the reauthorization, the new GI Bill came out. And what, what's the GI Bill? So the GI Bill was to provide opportunities for veterans that were coming back and reintegrating as citizens as an opportunity to, to gain the education and, and academic and professional uh, developmental experiences that they would need to go on to the careers that, that they would want to get into after serving in the military. And, and why was so much money uh, put into the, the GI Bills, both after World War II and to our, our modern combat area, is because education is so needed to make sure that people are set up to succeed in the society that we have. In working with many veterans in 2010 through about 2015, you know, one of the things that I, veterans with disabilities, one of the things that I was learning is that they weren't accessing disability resources that were available to them. They weren't even, you know, I was uh, working with them in the university setting and, you know, many of them had disabilities in which they could get accommodations for to get extra time on a test or to take tests in a environment that they could have low distractions and stimulus and focus on. Uh, And they weren't even going to take advantage of these accommodations because that they really had a, you know, their own stigmas towards disability. They didn't want to be associated with having a disability, even though they had one. Yes, these very brave people running from disability and the stigma that's associated with it and not even getting the resources that they would need to attain the things that they wanted to attain academically and and potentially professionally. And some of them were really struggling with school and could really use a lot of these resources. 
that could really set themselves up for the life that they were looking to have and coming back into our society. It was a real challenge for them. So again, why is education important? How does it pertain to disability? is yet another reason that's thrown out there. And, and, and there's many more for the sake of the dojos and the time that we have for them, you know, explaining the why I could go on and on. And it's really important that, you know, as we have more episodes that we really drill into this because it's wide and deep understanding why disability and education is so important. How does it pertain to the independent living network? We have a state plan for independent living that gets issued every three years in, in which, uh, you know, all centers for independent living and the directors come together and talk about it. The Florida Independent Living Council comes together and talks about it. We have our designated state entity, the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation, that has influence on it. And it contains goals and objectives and all these other things of which are going to direct the Independent Living Network's efforts for the upcoming three years. Well, in this iteration of the State Plan for Independent Living, otherwise known as the SPIL, we have... In it, goals in which we promote educational attainment and advocacy for students and parents with disabilities. And this is fantastic. We have really declared this and put this out there. And, and within this past legislative session, we now have approval, Centers for Independent Living, to go into schools. And schools must allow us in there to provide information and advocacy for students with disabilities, for parents who have disabilities so that students can succeed and transition out of school into post-secondary life successfully. We, we didn't have this uh, legislative approval to be able to do this where schools would be required to uh, do it. And, and this has given us a, another level of access and, and it's super exciting. So, you know, we look forward to doing more in schools and to support students with disabilities. So that's very exciting. When we look at the core services and how education really is a piece of what we do as Centers for Independent Living, uh, one of the core services is independent living skills. And this is delivered most often through traditional means of lesson plan and, and a curriculum that teaches what's known as activities of daily living. So this could be anything from how to manage one's finances to how to live healthy lifestyles, to cook for our, uh, ourselves, how to interact socially with others and communication. Then we got the core service of advocacy. Um, so we really seek to empower people with disabilities to be their own best advocates and to you know, know when, you know, what their rights are, to educate them on that, and to know how to talk about when their rights are not being honored, how to stand up for themselves, how to educate other people about what their rights are, whether it's in you know, housing or, or transportation or you know, just effective communication that is required and, and often not provided, how to access services, and, and if they're not being provided and, and people can't access the services that are offered to other people, educating people on the laws are, what their civil rights are, and then how to communicate with other people to ensure that they have equal access and are communicated to in an effective way, that's one of the services that we provide there. And that's baked with a whole lot of education there. Transition services, another one of our core services recently means youth transition. Transitioning from high school into post-secondary life is a required service that we're to do. And, and we've talked quite a bit about uh, the importance of that. And, and you'll notice in our long form interviews that we've been doing recently, we are talking to students in high school and their experiences. We're talking to young adults who recently graduated from high school and their experiences. And we're going to have 
episodes in the, in the long formats coming out in which we're going to be meeting more and more people in this space so we can get a better lens of what it's like to have a disability to be in school or to newly out of school and to transition out of it. We've had a good handful now and, and they've been illuminating to me. And, and I hope that uh, you get a lot out of them as well to really experience, you know, what it's like to have a disability in these areas. And so in the dojos, we unpack issue episodes in order to also familiarize people with the different jargon that may be heard in the long form interviews. I just had an interview with Jane Johnson, for example, and, you know, we were talking about education and disability. And, you know, she said, yeah, the idea legislation and, and she went on to keep talking. Well, IDEA is an acronym that stands for the Individuals with Disability Education Act. So the Individual Disability Education Act. This is a federal act that got passed a few decades ago, which provides the rights to have equal access for all students to education and provides for what's known as IEPs, uh, which is Individual Education Plan. So all students with a disability who have individualized education plan, so IEPs. So you'll hear that in episodes, have heard that, you know, being thrown out there in episodes, which gives a very systemic, you know, systematic plan with goals and objectives and how resources and teachers will be utilized in ensuring that students with disabilities have equal opportunities to be educated as students without disabilities. This is where accommodations come in. So do students need note takers? Do students need large print and alternative formats, auditory formats in order to be educated? Do they need a sign language interpreter to be provided and to ensure that they have equal access to the opportunities to be educated as with students without disabilities? Do they, um, they need extra test time, spaces to be able to take those tests? There's all kinds of different things that the IDEA and 504 section, which is another piece of legislation, that is out there to ensure students with disabilities have equal access to education. And there are times, as we were saying before, and, you know, advocacy is a big thing. There are times where uh, schools do not provide this equal access and ensure that, you know, students get accommodations that they need. If that is the case and there is a you know, level of advocacy that has happened and, and still accommodations aren't being met and the roles and responsibility of the school is not being followed through on, that there is a course of action that can be taken uh, where uh, students or you know families can then file complaints. And through the filing of complaints, it goes through the Office of Civil Rights to make sure that you know, schools are being held to account, to make sure that they are being responsible and ensuring that students with disabilities have equal access. And so there's a system out there that people can use if needed to ensure that they are you know, having equal access to that education. And in some point of order here that I think that's very important to have is that the idea, the Individuals with Disability Education Act, is up for reauthorization intermittently. And there's a lot of systemic advocacy that goes in to ensure that our legislatures, who oftentimes weren't even around when the act passed or might not be as familiar with the act as uh, we are as advocates, understand it and understand that passing this in its full form or to have adoptive measure put into it gets passed. So there's uh, cyclically a lot of advocacy for that. In the past president administration, in the Trump administration, there were 72 re revisions and rescissions to the IDEA Act that didn't have to get voted on. And so there was uh, some of the things that were taken out of there, and I'm not going to go into the merits of whether those are were good or bad, but this piece of legislation is a living, breathing piece of 
uh, legislation that can uh, be either strengthened or diminished. The Office of Civil Rights. So if, again, somebody as a student is not having accommodations met, can file a complaint. Well, the Office of Civil Rights has been cut big time in terms of funding and human resources. And that has had a big impact on people with disabilities and their ability to actually be heard if they believe that their rights are being violated. So there's not as many people there to hear the cases that come across it. And that has slowed things down a lot. There's also been changes at the Office of Civil Rights wherein people's complaints can be dismissed for a variety of different reasons. It's a lot easier to dismiss those nowadays. For example, one of them being that if people submit more than, than one complaint or the same complaint multiple times, um, their, their case can be just outright dismissed before even being heard. So if it's taken a while for someone who has submitted a complaint and they're following up with it and you know, are looking into it, that could be reason for dismissing something that's, you know, they're trying to get heard by. So, you know, again, uh, Centers for Independent Living are, are well aware of these things and why we have a lane here and really uh, understanding education and, and disability. It's very important in terms of advocacy and understanding the laws that go along with it. So in these dojos, just trying to point out to some of the issue areas that exist there. And it all really ties around to making sure that we have equal access. Some of the jargon that also gets thrown around when we talk about disability education is inclusion. For a long time in this educational settings, people with disabilities were self-contained. So separated out from the mainstream population of students who were getting their education. And there's been a you know, more of a push over the, the recent decades and in recent years to include students with disabilities in all classes and to integrate them. And we've seen when this happens, for the most part, students with disabilities are more successful academically. It helps also students without disabilities in terms of diversity and socialization and uh, also making sure that cultural normative attitudes about disability are more integrated. So when we separate students with disabilities into you know, other classroom settings and from the mainstream ones, it just tacitly at the very least shows you know, that there's division and segregation in our society. Now, I will say, and through my own experiences as well, there are times where students with, you know, especially with significant disabilities, you know, need to have their own attention in one-on-one or to be, you know, in a place that can really focus on some of the things that need to be focused on. So I do say that with a caveat because I have been, you know, a part of situations where it has benefited students with disabilities to have more individualized and one-on-one and even small group with other significant disabilities in there. So this isn't just a necessarily a black-white issue. I do have seen where it's really has benefited uh, certain students to be in, in those settings. So inclusion is a, is a big movement that has happened within education. It does have some nuances, like I just mentioned. Universal design, otherwise acronymed as UDL, is something that is a jargon in the area of disability and education. And what UDL posits is that all educational information should be shared in a way that's universally accessible by all people. And so that that could mean that when educational content is delivered, it should be delivered in all formats that are accessible for all students. So for myself with a vision disability, if um, you know students are being given hard copy materials 
that has text on it, it should be given in a font size that I can access it that's universally designed for low vision people. Um, there should also be an auditory format for people that might be completely blind. You know, if people have hearing impairments or deaf, it should be given in a way that, that they understand whether, uh, you know, it's a sign language interpreter or closed captioning that could be provided. If material and educational content that do have a lot of text should be delivered in a way that may be pictorially graphic or providing, you know, visuals that might be easier for students, for example, that have learning disabilities, you know, to be accessible for, for students that, you know, have issues relating to a lot of text and, and really can be problematic for them, making sure that it's delivered in a way that's not so text heavy. Uh, dyslexia, for example, it can be really challenging for people who have that type of learning disability to to receive and go through a lot of text and often benefit for more graphic information being delivered to them in that sense. You know, there's many other examples of universally designing educational content. If instructors and in schools can ensure that all educational content is delivered in a universally designed way, the idea being, the utopia being, that we won't need a disability resource center. We won't need accommodations to be provided because it is already baked into the system that all educational content and experiences are, are delivered in a way that's universally designed. And, and that might help to abate the issues that I was talking about previously with the veterans, you know, not wanting to disclose their disability, not wanting to go to the disability recess center, not wanting to have to get an accommodations letter that they, they would have to then present to an instructor. Because the curriculum itself, the lessons plans itself, would already be universally designed in a way that is given to them that they don't have to ask for accommodations because it's already in there. So universal design is a concept uh, that is you know, the gold standard that is put out there in the realm of education. So parents and education is a huge piece and component too. Uh, again, I'm still under the umbrella of independent living and, and how we can be helpful in this space. So now that we have this piece of legislation that allows us to go into schools here in Florida to help support students and their parents with disabilities and educational attainment is a huge one. And it's also expanding what independent living means. It specifically means us working with people with disabilities, allowing them to live independently, but we also recognize that parents have a huge influence on the students with the disability, and this will allow us now to help support them in their capacity to be supportive of their children in terms of their educational attainment. I think that's a really good thing and something that I don't think the Independent Living Network has a whole lot of experience in at our center specifically. You know, we did help to support a parent group. They identified themselves as the Independent Opportunity Network, or otherwise known as ION, but it allowed them to come here to our center to have meeting space, to be able to talk about some of the supports they needed from each other and the ideas that they could bounce off of one another about what's working or not working and engaging their children, their teens, and ultimately becoming their young adults and, and became a place where they could really you know, share ideas and, and what worked and what hasn't worked for them, uh, resources that they would know and share with one another. It was a wonderful space to be able to share with them. I found it to be cathartic. It grew into them being able to uh, utilize our center as a space to offer social opportunities for their teens, for their young adults to come together and connect. And, and through those social opportunities, it gave them more time to engage with each other as parents to better understand and be the best parents that they could be to help support their loved ones, their children. 
so that that was a real good I think opportunity for us to be able to be of service to them and certainly it's given me more ideas to really think about in terms of putting into practice and how we can be supportive of parents of students with disabilities moving forward you know I'm going to shift now into from my own experiences and my own journey through education as a, as a student as a teacher and by the way I always see myself as a learner and as a student even when I was teaching constantly learning the purpose of education you know what ultimately is the purpose of education and and through through my experiences and through what I've learned what I believe uh, the true purpose of education to be and again this is just my thoughts and you can have answers that are certainly different than mine not saying mine are the only ones and I'm right I'm continually learning but it is to create inspired independent learners who just have a, a, a thirst and love for just wanting to learn not for good grades but just that there's something infectious about you know, learning new things and being captivated by the wonder and awe of the world and everything in it. It's just there's so much to learn and do. It's endless. It's endless. And, and to be captivated by that endless thirst for wanting to know and learn and experience more and to develop skills and to have an idea and to try things and experiment with things and to to not succeed and to to figure things out that that aren't successful. It's just a wonderful, wonderful process. And I, I would hope that whatever education system that we're in really cultivates the thirst for learning and to have confidence and to instill that confidence in people, I ultimately find to be the purpose of education. And how do we create inspired independent learners? Well, the research I've seen out there, there is a recipe for that. And it's uh, one part and probably one of the most important parts is cultivating what's known as a growth mindset. And we're going to have a dojo that's just on growth mindset. Um, It's uh, been something that's probably well known now. And and I've been encouraged to see our local schools that have adopted this. But it comes from the at least Carol, Carol Dewick from Stanford has very much popularized this concept that. Growth mindset is the belief that we have the ability to learn something, even if we don't know it yet, not yet's a very big aspect of the growth mindset, that we have the capacity to learn it, that even though we might not do well in math yet, that we certainly have the capacity and capabilities to learn math and get better at it. And this comes in stark contrast to what a fixed mindset is. A fixed mindset would you know, tell us that yeah, I'm not good at something and I can never be good at something. And this has shined light in my life, you know, in terms of where I find myself to have a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. I'm currently trying to learn the language of Portuguese, um, doing this late in life. And, I'm, and I got a ton of excuses that are a fixed mindset. I'm too old. The neuroplasticity in my brain is shrinking to the point where I can't do it. You know, I'm too, too American, too English. I got all kinds of excuses why I can't learn this. And understanding the growth mindset can illuminate the fact that I am embracing a fixed mindset and that goes against my value system. I want to have a growth mindset. And there's so much research out there that shows when we do adapt a growth mindset, when youth do adapt this kind of attitude, that people are able to learn more versus a fixed mindset. So so how can we create inspired learners? Well, one thing is really instilling a growth mindset. And a growth mindset would praise effort versus outcome. So in other words, if uh, one of my sons comes home you know, with a good grade, I'm not praising the grade. I'm praising, wow, I saw how hard you worked uh, to get that. I, I really admire how curious you are to learn 
about science or why the sky is blue or, you know, why that tree is growing out of a rock. You know, I was asked by my son the, the other day and you know, I was like, yeah, that praising their curiosity, their interest in wanting to learn more versus gee whiz, you know, I'm so proud of you because you got a good grade is a very much encouraged in a growth mindset. Because if we encourage and, and praise the outcomes, you know, the, the idea being that they work more towards the outcome than they actually the process and the process is learning. The outcome's the grade. And so growth mindset is one part of the recipe of how we can, you know, cultivate inspired learners. Another set comes to us from the theory of self-determination. So self-determination theory, which is, a, by the way, a huge theory that's promoted in independent living, has three parts to it. Autonomy independence, uh, competency, and relatedness. So autonomy um, being that we can give somebody, you know, say a problem or a thing to learn and allow them the space to go about learning it in the way that they see fit. I see this play out all the time. And so, so with my sons, you know, I'll say, hey, this, this chore or this activity needs to get done. You go about it in the way that you see fit. I, you know, would want to see that this outcome happens in the end, but how you get there, it's up to you. And you can have some autonomy doing that. I see this at work here as being a, you know, director <clears throat> and that wants to, you know, support our staff. I'll say, hey, you know, we, we need to get this service done or completed. Um, how do you think we should do it? Not me telling them how I think they should do it, but allowing them the autonomy to come up with a solution and process a method for uh, meeting a need that we have of a consumer that has seen us it leads to much better outcomes than me dictating exactly how this program service or you know, job should function. Empowering them with that kind of autonomy leads to more buy-in and to more enthusiasm for people to be able to go and do that. So that's another part of this recipe. Another part is competence. You know, when we're better skilled at doing something, uh, we're more likely to do it. But it also, it doesn't mean that our competency is based on our performance. It kind of ties in back into growth mindset. It's just our ability to, to believe that we can do something, that we're, we are competent, uh, at least in being able to learn something that we don't know yet and to be able to do. So our, our competency our, and to acquiring skills, and once we become better skilled at something, say public speaking, you know, maybe uh, someone that doesn't have a high degree of competence in public speaking, but the more that they do it, uh, the more competent that they get at it, the more confidence that they'll have, and the more inspired they will be to continue to learn to do that. Uh, relatedness, the third part of uh, self-determination theory. Uh, relatedness. So this idea that you know we're in relationship to one another and we are social learners. So we see somebody do something and we see the positive or negative consequences that they get from doing what we observe does inspire us to either do or not do something that we're observing there. So we're always in relation to one another and we're observing others and we're seeing if someone gets a positive consequence from doing something or a negative consequence from doing something that then inspires us or discourages us from doing what we see. And so going into relation with others is very important in terms of self-determination. And, and an important caveat here, I think, is, is to you know, not get sucked into approval seeking. So I don't want to encourage my sons to excel in learning and doing things because they need my approval. Um, that can be a trap. That can be a bad thing. And, and, and getting sucked into approval-seeking patterns of behavior is not the kind of relatedness that the, uh, the creators of self-determination theory were getting into. And in fact, that can be a trap for uh, living the life of another person because we're always seeking their approval. 
So um, that's a, a little bit of a caveat there. So again, how can we encourage and in people to be self-directed and inspired learners? Well, the growth mindset, self-determination theory, which is autonomy, it's uh, competency and it's relatedness. Those are big important things. And, and the final thing that research and practice has shown us is engaging the learner in what's known as flow state activities. So what are those activities that you and I or others really enjoy doing that we would do even if people weren't forcing us to do it? And if you're wondering what those activities may be, is it what is it that you love and that when you do it, time just seems to go away? Um, you could burn a lot of time away doing something and you don't even realize that you're burning away time, that you're highly focused, but also in, in a way disconnected to what you're doing because the rest of life tends to melt away. And so for me, like a flow state activity would be doing physical exercise. Um, you know, I can go on forever almost running or swimming and, and really enjoying it. For my sons, I see them building Lego sets and just getting in fully engaged and involved into building Lego sets. For some, it's playing music or being an artist. Um, what are those flow state activities that are out there that you enjoy in life? And for me, I'm finding the more flow state activities I can do in my daily experiences, the higher the quality of life that I have. And what is the, those flow state activities for students, for, for students with disabilities? What is it they really love that we can tap into and then also tie into other activities that they might not have a flow state in which you know, they're finding now in education research that if a student doesn't really enjoy math, but they enjoy art, having them engage in artistic activities that segue into doing math can really help get them motivated to then do math because now we've engaged the part of their brain that is secreting dopamine and serotonin and building neural pathways and then switching the gears over into something else can really help tip interest in other areas that they might not have interest or flow states in and can be very useful. Again, to summarize, uh, the purpose of education for me is to create inspired, self-directed learners. And we do this by cultivating growth mindsets, autonomy, uh, competency, relatedness to one another, and engaging in those flow states. And to round this out, I just want to recognize that there have been a lot of different learning styles that have been identified in people, understanding what our preferred learning style is important. So we got auditory ways of learning, which I really enjoy because I don't have the other type of learning style, visual. You know, so visual learners, auditory learners. We got kinesthetic learners who learn through motion and movement. We got learners who are more artistic. And so they learn through, it could be musical, it could be mathematical is another type of a learning style that's out there. I believe Howard Gardner, who is a Harvard professor who really popularized different learning styles, came up with eight and counting different types of styles that we have in terms of receiving, processing, and synthesizing information. So uh, when we talk about people with disabilities, and any people, in fact, it's important to know what the preferred learning style of a person is. And then we can tailor our teaching style to make sure that we are activating that learning style, aligning and equilibrating teaching styles with learning styles is highly, highly, highly important into uh, promoting inspired, confident, lifelong learners. That's that piece there of education and disability, uh, the purpose I find in it. And now what, what's the future of education? What are some of my thoughts on that? Well, we're currently in the midst of a, uh, of a great social experiment with the COVID pandemic and its impact on education has been profound. 
talking through my own personal experiences with my sons who are in uh, elementary school, we learned how important it is for us and our family to have them going to a school, receiving an education from other people that aren't ourselves, exposes them to other people that have different viewpoints and, and experiences and skill sets to impart upon them. We've always been a believer in that. You know, I've been a teacher. My mom has had experiences as a teacher. I have many friends who are in the teaching profession. And, and man, I value teachers big time. And I also value uh, the importance of homeschooling. Uh, my sister homeschools 13, 13 of her own children. And so I have immense you know, for her and her be able to capacity to teach. But but for us and our family, I know with COVID, when it originally got shut down in March of 2020, you know, we were responsible for educating our sons at home. And being in elementary school, I got to say, it was, a, it was a challenge to have them in front of a screen, you know, four or five hours a day. I could see this being useful perhaps for you know, high schoolers and maybe young adults for this form of education, but it was very challenging for us. We weren't prepared to be at home uh, educators, and we had to learn very quickly how to do it and, and gain so much respect for people like my sister and others who do this. Uh, it takes a, it's a high degree of talent, skill, and preparation to do. You know, this past school year, uh, a year ago, the 2020-21, you know, we had a choice. Do we um, send them back to the brick and mortar? Do we do strictly virtual? Do we do a hybrid? And, you know, we chose to, to send them back. And it was a tough decision to make uh, because of the, the, the safety concerns and everything else. And some people did make that decision and, you know, saw that, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's very challenging. So um, the idea that, you know, one day in the future, it'll be strictly virtual. Maybe it will be. Who knows? I don't know. But I think it's very interesting right now because of the COVID pandemic. It's given us this great social educational experiment to go through. And I think it is going to impact how schooling is done in the future. I think for people like ourselves, it's just reinforced the value of having schools for others who, you know, maybe have found it very beneficial to to have education at home and virtually. And certainly for people with disabilities, I, we recently had an episode with Zach at Starbucks, and he definitely served him to do schooling at home and now post-secondary education. It's been very useful for him and accommodations and everything else like that. So, so I think it's going to really expand opportunities for people in many different ways. So I think the future of education is very interesting nowadays. You know, the future of education and, and how we access information, it's certainly different. When I was growing up, if, uh, you know, I wanted to learn about something without the internet, it was like encyclopedias. I don't even know if nowadays people, millennials would even know what an encyclopedia is. But it was these like books, you know, from A to Z that would talk about all different kinds of things about life that we'd have to actually go to a uh, a library and use the Dewey Decimal System to go up and look up and get into a hard copy of a book. Now, now we got the internet. And with the internet, um, all different things that, it's wonderful. I mean, there's ways now that you can get uh, a full-on undergraduate, graduate degree on so many different disciplines strictly through the internet. And there's like classes that are taught nowadays by some of the greatest in their field that are online. You know, people can, I think it's called hack an education nowadays, which is wonderful and have all kinds of access to it. Um, there's the unschooling movement where this is incredibly attractive to our family where, you know, you'd have to have privilege and means to do this. But, you know, having your kids and traveling you know, across the country and any times we've taken vacations with our kids and gone out and done things, uh, we, we, we see absolutely 
that um, there's just having real life, real world experiences that you just can't learn in a classroom. And so there's this unschooling movement that's out there. And again, you'd have that privilege and and uh, advantage to be able to do that. But, you know, who, you know, again, the future of education, I think there's all kinds of opportunities and there's all kinds of threats that are out there, too. And, um, you know, goodness, like right now we're, we're in the midst of a age of misinformation that is out there and it's contaminating uh, and infecting a lot of minds that are out there and conspiratorial thinking and theories that's leading to a lot of uh, erosion of trust of institutions. And certainly these institutions haven't helped by shooting themselves in the foot uh, oftentimes over certain issues. But there's really bad actors and actresses that are out there that are intentionally uh, propagating misinformation. And with the advent of deep artificial intelligence where, you know, you can have create images of real life people saying things that they're not saying, Man, it is quite a concern of me uh, seeing potentially what the future of education has to bring in terms of uh, the intentional uh, use of misinformation that can get out there and really destroy families, destroy people's minds, destroy institutions and our culture. It's something that's real. And, And I find that, again, part of education and the future of education is how do we train uh, people, ourselves, myself, to be skeptical uh, of what we're th- seeing. Not cynical, but skeptical, as my father says. And, and you really question, what is it you're, you're telling me and teaching me? And, and where am I getting this information? When I was at the university, um, you know, one of the things that we would teach students is, um, you know, how to access information. You know, the schools and the libraries would have licenses to tens of thousands of scientific journals across all kinds of disciplines and fields. And it would be a real skill set to teach the students, you know, how to do what we called, you know, uh, systematic literature reviews, you know, how to go into these databases, you know, put in the key terms and words that were necessary to go do uh, the searches across all these different journals to pull up scientific peer-reviewed journals, which are primary sources of information, which would we would regard at least as the most trusted source of information. You know, the researchers themselves that were conducting the research, getting the actual journal article itself, um, and, and really chopping up, you know, the research that they did. There's no such thing as the perfect experiment and training students about, you know, how to, how to read the background, the methods, the results, the conclusion sections, you know, understanding what the limitations of that research was, but still, still yet regarding it as the most um, trustworthy based of information to, to look at and, and, and also being skeptical of the journal it was uh, you know, published in. Even, you know, was it peer-reviewed? And if it was peer-reviewed, what was the impact factor that this journal had? Impact factor being journals are rated, you know, in terms of uh, significance, importance, and trustworthiness. Uh, and, you know, is it coming from a highly regarded, high-impact factor journal? And if so, it could be trusted more than the, a lower-impact factor the merits of that, we're not going to debate right now, but just to say that, you know, primary sources of information in a misinformation age, I find is more trustworthy, still needs to be reviewed with skepticism. But then we got secondary sources of information. So during the COVID pandemic, you know, we would hear a lot from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention 
about information. They were curating primary sources of information. They were, they were looking at the research that was going out there and making determinations of guidelines. And, and to not conflate them, the CDC, um, with the actual researchers themselves. They might have been helping to fund some of the research. Maybe some of the people there at the CDC were working on some of the research that was getting published. But often as an institution, we're purveyors of this information. You know, oftentimes not the primary sources of information, but they are secondary sources of information. And there are other secondary sources of information, such as the American Medical Association and others, and that would purvey you know, some of that information, at least in the health field. Um, but tertiary sources of information. This would be your local news outlets, um, websites, things that are out there that are, are more of, of our news feeds that we get out there. Yeah, I'm not sure blogs and, and people that are you know, on social media would count. I, I would say that that should be even another layer of information that's out there that's by far less trustworthy. But I'm saying that all this underneath the point of misinformation and what's out there and what should be you know trusted and not trusted. But I, I think a high degree of skepticism, even from the highest uh, valued sources of information, should, should always be given and thought about. So uh, future of uh, education, um, you know, teaching and its profession. I, again, I, I highly regard teachers and, and what they do and, and value them. Uh, I think our society should value them in terms of uh, their reputation, but also in terms of what we're paying them. We're, we're trusting them with the future of our society, with our children. And so I think it should be a profession that should be elevated in that sense. And, and they're known as being, uh, you know, the blue collar of the white collar professions and um, no, not a knock on blue collar professions by any means, because uh, as we're seeing nowadays, they're, you know, the blue collar professions are some of the most essential in our society. The truck drivers, the, the people that work in the food industry, uh, the people that you know, stock our shelves, that put gas in our cars, you know, are all, I, I think, should be highly, highly compensated and valued in that sense to show that we truly value them and teachers the same way. At the same time, I've seen uh, how teachers are educated myself, uh, you know, going through the curriculum. But I also was responsible for teaching educators uh, about education and recognize that not a lot of teachers get a lot of exposure towards how to teach students with disabilities. You know, sometimes it's only a one semester, three hour class in, you know, teaching exceptional student education, you know, that the general education teachers are getting uh, in their preparation to teach, you know, mainstream classes, which they'll have students with disabilities and often are, you know, maybe educated on what an individualized education plan is an IEP and how to set one up and but a very minimal amount of exposure into educating our educators about disabilities. And, and I've seen some promise in revising curriculums and academic development for our professionals that are going out there in education. But I think a lot can be done to help improve and accelerate uh, that in this profession that I think it should be, always be held in the highest degree and highest regard. You know, another thing that I'm seeing unfold nowadays uh, in terms of ed- education and the future of it is um, what's happening right now. Go to your local school board meetings nowadays. See what's going on and how it's being conducted. Look at some of the adults in the room and how they're conducting themselves around issues. It seems to be this is uh, ground zero nowadays for where the culture wars are being had. You know, whether, you know, it's about whether or not we integrate, you know, critical race theory, um, whether it's about, you know, vaccinations being required for teachers or whether or not students should wear masks, 
just about anything else that you know seems to be uh, you know relevant and, and and issues related to politics, it is coming out in full force at school board meetings. Um, there's a lot of viral videos that are going around right now about how adults aren't behaving like adults at these meetings. And so I think that's going to likely accelerate. And this has a huge influence on how schools operate, um, what curriculum they adapt, what, you know, is being taught. And, and so certainly school board meetings are something that I believe it's all our civic duty to be a, a participant of, to be active in. But how we do it, I think, needs to also be uh, something that we all need to pay attention to because our children are watching. They are noticing what we do and how we conduct ourselves. And right now, uh, you know, one of the concerns I certainly have is the impression that adults are imparting upon our youth nowadays and how we're conducting ourselves as we talk about these issues. I see a lot of adults behaving like children, and we're role modeling that to them. It uh, reminds me of a quote by uh, James Baldwin that says, children have never been really good at listening to their elders, but they are excellent and have never failed at imitating them. And so I, th I think that's a really good quote that really points towards how we are conducting ourselves as adults. I'll, now I'm going to put myself in the same space that I'm, I'm pointing the finger at, you know, in terms of other people and how they're conducting themselves. That, that's also my responsibility and how I conduct myself is being noticed by other people. And it's so important that whether or not we are professional teachers, we're all teaching. And I find that excellent teachers are like bridges that we help to facilitate the crossing of understanding of our students from one point to another point. And if we really do a good job in, in being bridges and facilitating the crossing of understanding from one place to another, that we're going to then empower those students who have crossed our bridge to go out and build bridges of their own where they're going to help facilitate the crossing of understanding of others from one place to another. So we're always teaching. We're always teaching, and people are always learning uh, from us. So everyone's our teacher, you know, and we're always learning from them, and we're always teaching uh, as well. And I'm going to leave a quote here that I think is very important as we talk about future and education, and it is that education is the passport to the future, for tomorrow belongs for those who prepare for it today. Education is the passport to the future, for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. That comes to us from Malcolm X. I will leave you with that to chew on, to think about disability and education. So important. Education is needed, but it is not sufficient into getting to where we want to go. It's going to matter how we share this information, how we make sure that we're responsible in the information that we do share, and how that we conduct ourselves in sharing this information because our students, students with disabilities are watching and they will imitate us regardless if they learn from us or not. So until next time, onward and upward. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. 
For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.